Welcome to the One God Report. This is our second episode of a two-part series taking a look at Hebrews chapter 1. In the first part, we examined Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. In this episode, we will look at verses 8 through 14. Let's jump right in at Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, now getting to verse 8, we get into some more interesting translation issues. First of all, we're going to see quoted in verse 8, Psalm 45. And the speaker of Psalm 45 is not God. The speaker is the psalmist, and he is praising the Davidic king. Looks like a wedding ceremony of the Davidic king. Solomon is probably a good candidate, and he's praising this king who God has designated he has a God. The Davidic king has a God, very clearly. God has designated this descendant of David to be king. And that king is going to get married to a, looks like, foreign princess. So that's the context of Psalm 45. It's not God speaking, and the English translations are not fair. Back in Hebrews 1.8, the original text, the original Greek text of Hebrews 1.8, does not say he says. It's just of the Son. The speaker is not God. Deity of Christ, people, I know myself, I got this wrong. The speaker of Psalm 45 is a psalmist, not God. Mm -hmm. So of the Son, okay, the, the Son, this designated king, of the Son, now most English texts translate this as your throne, O God, is forever and ever is what we would call evocative, a direct address. They'll take this as, many people will take this as God saying to the Son, calling the Son God. Or even if it's the psalmist, they'll say the psalmist is calling the Son God. I remember the first time I heard this. I heard the claim that the Son is being called God in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. So I go and look at it, and I say, oh yeah, there it is. It's right there. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. I went back and looked at it, and I read it in Hebrew, and I, I can read Hebrew. There's much more to learn, but I have a basic grasp of the language. And I looked at it, and I said, yeah, that's a way that could be translated. But actually, if you'd ask me, is there a better way? I would say yes. And the better way would simply be to translate it, Your throne is God forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. It's really a question of where to put the word is in the sentence, and it's grammatically possible either way. Because Hebrew doesn't have the amr is, the present tense forms of be. So the first phrase of Psalm 45, verse 6, grammatically can be translated, your throne is God forever. Or it could be translated as, your throne God is forever. Both are possible. If you had to pin me down grammatically, I think it's better to translate it, your throne is God forever and ever. It seems to parallel better with the next phrase, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Also, next, another reason that it is preferable to translate this as your throne is God is because in the next verse, the word God occurs two times. And you don't have to change the meaning of God in Psalm 45, verse 6, to a different meaning in Psalm 
45, verse 7. And the next verse is as well quoted in Hebrews, where the psalmist continues and says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Mashachcha Elohim Elohecha. If you're going to say that God in verse 6 is the king that's being talked about in the psalm, and then you change the meaning of God in the next verse, it's not a, a good idea. It's called equivocation. You have to change the meaning of one word from one verse to the next verse. And this portion of the psalm is quoted as well in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, we'll see it uh, in just a little bit. So in short, you don't have to equivocate on the meaning of the word God if you translate Kisacha Elohim as your throne is God. But also ideologically or theologically, Jews don't call their king God. Pagans may have. Pagans may have thought their king was a God on earth somehow or incarnate or appearing, but Jews don't. Jews know very clearly the difference between God in heaven and God's designated king on the earth. And they wouldn't call the king God. They might call the king's throne God's throne. That they would. And we can see that in the biblical narrative, both in Chronicles and in Psalms. They know that the throne that the Davidic king sits on is the throne established by God, even in one case, Yahweh's throne that David and Solomon are sitting on. But Jews just don't call their king God. So ideologically, it's more understandable, translate this as your throne is God forever and ever. The Septuagint translators, when they translated the Hebrew text into Greek, they stuck right with the Hebrew of Psalm 45, verse 6, pretty much word for word. They didn't even put the word is in the translation. They left it poetic. But it's pretty much exactly word for word with the Hebrew. And so is the Greek in the book of Hebrews 1.8. It added simply the word and in between the two main phrases. Like we said before, there is no he says. It's just of the Son and then quoting this verse. Very much sticking with the Septuagint, except for adding the word and in between the two phrases. The and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. So, Kisacha Elohim, Olam the Ed. Your throne is God forever. Now, what does that mean? How can we say that your throne is God? What does it mean? It's poetry. It's, it's a poetic way to say the right to rule of this Davidic king is God. His authority, his throne. The throne is a symbol of your right to rule, the authority to rule. So he is saying that the authority of this king to rule is God. God has established it. It comes back again to this being the divinely ordained monarchy. Your throne is God. Now we have other similar Hebrew poetic expressions. Let me give you a few examples of similar kinds of statements in poetical sections in the Bible, especially in Psalms. Yahweh is my rock. What? Yahweh is my rock? How can Yahweh, God, be my rock? 
or Yahweh is my fortress. Yahweh is my fortress. I think we've heard those enough that we know what it means. It's not that Yahweh is, is the physical fortress. It means he's my protector. He's the place I can find security and protection. Or how about Yahweh is my cup. You drink a cup of coffee in the morning. Yahweh is your cup. Isn't that a little derogatory to call Yahweh, God Almighty, your cup? What does it mean? It means what you're going to have in life, what you want to have in life, and what you will experience in life. Yahweh is my portion. Now look at Psalm 73, 26. It's very, very similar in grammar and I think somewhat in meaning. My portion is God forever. Chelki Elohim le'olam. My portion is. You see the word is there? See, Hebrew doesn't have the present tense forms of be. Am, are, or is. My portion is God forever. What is he saying when he says my portion is God? It means his expectations, his hope, his lot in life, everything for him is God. So in the same way here, this Psalm 45 is very poetic. It's saying that the throne that this king rules on is God. You can see a few other translations actually get this right. I noticed in the Revised Standard Version, they put a little footnote, or could be, could translate this as, God is your throne. And they're exactly right in this. It's a preferable translation. The idea of this being a direct address, it's for sure not God speaking this to another God person or something like that. This is the psalmist. And he is as well seeing a Davidic king being married, honoring that Davidic king. He's not calling that Davidic king God. He knows that the throne of that Davidic king is divinely ordained. His right to rule is forever. Any other comments? It pretty much hits it. I was confused when I read this. Because all the translations translate it as a vocative, as a direct address. That yeah. O, the O God, it's not in the text. It looks, like, it looks like that verse is directly calling Jesus God. Yeah. But when you put it in light of the text that you just read, which I read those verses and I was not confused that God's mm-hmm. not a rock. It's a uh, figure of speech just kind of giving a characteristic to God. And this is, this is the same thing, just saying that the throne is of the utmost authority. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a pretty good parallel in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes his promise to David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. The portion that's quoted in Hebrews 1 as well, where it says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14. But let me just read verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can see the same kind of language. God says here in this case, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see the idea of a throne being forever? It's established by God forever. And when the author of the psalm poetically says, your throne is God, his authority, his right to rule, is ordained by God. And not only that, the eternality of a distress. He's not going to rule just for a short while. And the New Testament writers pick up on this. If you remember the declaration of Gabriel to Mary, when he told Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a son says he will rule over the throne of David forever. So it's the eternality aspect of being of God, too, that's important to the psalmist. 
and to the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews sees Jesus as ruling forever, not because he's God, but because God has made him immortal. Mm. Yeah, there's even a reference to Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Very good. At the very least, the grammar, your throne is God, can be taken that way. Mm -hmm. And it's preferable to take it that way. And then he says, the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. This king will rule righteously and justly. Look at verse 9. Again, this is evidence that the one, the son being spoken of here is not God. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your fellows. So here, this king that's being spoken of has a God. Now, there's only one God. And this king's God is God. So the king is not God. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) You can only have one God. Jesus Christ has a God, and that's the only God. So this God anointed this one. Does it really make sense to say Jesus is God, verse 9, that he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness? Like that's some kind of a reward for God? Hey, God, you did a really good job of loving righteousness and hating lawlessness, God. So the other God is going to reward you with the oil of gladness beyond your comrades or beyond your companions, does that mean there are other gods? Because if Jesus is God and he has companions, that means the other companions must be gods. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Old Testament is pretty clear that there's no God above Yahweh, above the Almighty God. Mm -hmm. He can give glory to people who he wants to give glory to, and we see that in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. But, of course, it always talks about how Christ received his glory. If he wants to glorify somebody, he can choose to do that. But they don't inherently have the same glory that he does. God can't make somebody else God. Exactly. There's Mm -hmm. only one. There's the Almighty. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget that Hebrews 1.8, according to most Trinitarians, is supposed to be one of the main verses in which Jesus is called God. There's a Trinitarian scholar, Murray Harris, he wrote a book called Jesus as God. And he says there are some 1,300 occurrences of God, the word God in the New Testament. And he looks at the possible ones where Jesus is referred to as God. And he says there are seven likely. But when you look at those, they're not very likely. We've looked at some already. We can look at others. If you just change a comma... Jesus is not being called God. But two of the main ones are Thomas's statement in John 20, 28. And we've seen the problems with that claim. It just, among other things, it ignores the work of God the Father in Jesus Christ. It ignores that God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. But you can see our podcast for a number of other problems with interpreting that verse as Thomas claiming that Jesus is God. And then this one. And here, too, this is supposed to be one of the main references that shows that Jesus is God. Out of 1,300 times that the word God occurs in the New Testament, 
and this one that can be taken a different way. You think that the Jewish people called the king of Israel God? You're going to interpret it that way? And then now say that, yes, the writer of Hebrews applies Psalm 45 to Jesus calling him God? In the rest of the book of Hebrews, why doesn't he pick up on this theme? He never calls Jesus God again. In all the rest of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is a human being. He's the high priest who died, who shed his blood, who made an offering for us, who God raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand. As we saw before, Jesus is not part of God. He's always distinguished from God in the book of Hebrews. And this is supposed to be one of the main references to Jesus being called God in the New Testament. Wow. Okay, verse 10. Let's read verses 10 through 13 together. He's going to quote from Psalm 102, which describes Yahweh, the God of Israel, the name of the, the one God, as creator. He says, and, verse 10, you, Yahweh, Lord, right? That's Yahweh in the psalm. Didst found the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remainest. They will all grow old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never end. But to what angel has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet? Now the question would be, why does the writer of the book of Hebrews quote Psalm 102 here about Yahweh being the creator of everything, being eternal? He won't grow old. The creation may wear out and he may change it. He might bring another age about, but Yahweh stays the same. Why does the writer of Hebrews describe Yahweh here? I think the answer is he wants to tell us that God the eternal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, his name is Yahweh, that God who's created everything has placed a man at his right hand. You see how he says in verse 13, after he quotes Psalm 102 in verse 10 and 11 and 12, about Yahweh being the creator, but to what angel has he, who is that? That's Yahweh. Mm -hmm. The one that he just got done describing the creator of all who is eternal. That's the he of verse 13. To what angel has he? That one, the mm -hmm. eternal God. Mm -hmm. To what angel has that one, Yahweh, ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. So this is why he's quoting Psalm 102. He's kind of going back and forth between the almighty God and the one that that almighty God has placed at his right hand. The almighty eternal God He's not said to an angel, sit at my right hand. That almighty eternal God that made the heavens and the earth, and he can change him if he wants to, that one, he's not put an angel at his right hand. He said to a man, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Yeah, the way I look at this and understand it is verses basically 10 through 12 kind of qualify this God he's been talking about this whole time. It says that God, who did God say? You're my son, I've begotten you. And then in what we just read in verse 8, your throne is God. That's where your authority comes from. And then also God, your God has anointed you. Talking about Christ the anointed. And then it gets to verse 10. And it's like, okay, who's this God we've been talking about? Well, he's the one that laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. 
The heavens are a work of his hands. He's the creator. Everything will perish, but God is the one that will... This is the God I've been talking about this whole time in this book. He's qualifying this God. He's saying this is the almighty God. And then which of the angels has he said? And that he, that he refers back to the God he's been talking about exactly. in verses 10 So he just basically 12. takes the time to yeah. basically mm-hmm. glorify almighty God. Yeah. And, and then how great it is that that almighty God has put a human being in his right hand. In a lot of ways, it goes right back to the theme of the Bible. God creates man to be his vice regent. And to rule over his to creation. To rule over his creation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There are some biblical Unitarians, so-called, that see these verses of Psalm 102 being recast as Jesus being the one who is the new creator. I don't agree with that. Even in other places where Jesus is involved in the new creation, he is not the creator. Mm-hmm. The new creation is being done by God through Jesus. But it's not the reason that the writer of Hebrews brings in Psalm 102. Mm-hmm. The reason is just like you described. He tells us who the Almighty Creator God is, and that, that one has put a man at his right hand. And that's a very easy idea to understand. Whereas if Jesus is God, it's tough to squeeze that into these verses. Because he clearly is below God. Mm-hmm. He clearly was given authority by God. What God needs all that yeah, he's never God catering this, to. Jesus mm-hmm. is never God. We see you can go God, God, God right through. The only questionable one is the poetical quote from Psalm 45. Mm-hmm. But it, look at the he the, in verse 13. This is God. It's not Jesus. Right. He said to somebody, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. So it's not an angel. This is the point that the writer wants to make in this chapter. God has not put an angel at his right hand. It's the human being, Jesus. As he wraps up in verse 14, as far as angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation? And then he goes on to chapter 2, like we read before, where he says, this covenant, this message, this word that God is giving us is through this one who is greater than angels. He's a human being. He's greater than angels. We better pay attention. Don't think that it's best to go back into the old covenant that we had previously. Jesus has initiated a new covenant, Mm -hmm. a better one, Mm -hmm. better than Moses, better high priest than Aaron, better rest than Joshua, better sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And that's how chapter one fits in to that context. God has said to a man, sit at my right hand. I mean, that's really amazing. What an amazing Mm -hmm. hope that is. Mm -hmm. Because we participate then. If Jesus is God, is another God at God's right hand? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now what, what's for us? Mm-hmm. Right? It just it mm-hmm. throws a wrench into the, all of the biblical narrative where God said, let's make man and he will rule over all the earth, all of the things mm-hmm. that I've created. Amen. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast or YouTube channel, Please follow us and rate the podcast and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others find us as well as share us on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim the Yismahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.